Welcome to Quick Hits, the only podcast that gets you smartenized. Today's episode, Secondhand Smoke and Global Warming. Twenty years ago, I became obsessed with the science behind secondhand smoke. It was being blamed for everything from lung cancer to tooth decay in children, and this was being used to inspire a jihad against smokers that continues to this day. I wanted, I, I needed to find out if any of these claims were true. In order to do that, I had to learn quite a bit. I had to learn about epidemiology, statistics, and toxicology. I learned about sample sizes, risk ratios, odds ratios, confidence intervals, confounders, control groups, the null hypothesis, sample sizes, LD50, recall bias, publication bias, sample selection bias, case control studies, retrospective studies, meta-analysis, and a whole bunch of other stuff. One of the most interesting things on that list is publication bias. Studies that find positive correlations between two things are far more likely to be published than studies that find no correlation. Imagine that for some reason there's a belief that coffee causes athlete's foot. 30 studies are conducted. Eight of them find a weak correlation between coffee drinkers and athlete's foot sufferers. Unsurprisingly, six of those eight studies were funded by the anti-caffeine committee. 22 of them find no connection between the two. All eight of the positive studies get published, and the media screams the results from every web page. One, maybe two, of the negative ones see print. Later on, you're doing your own research, and you go hunting for the facts of the matter, and you find eight studies that prove coffee causes athletes' foot, and only one that says it doesn't. What are you going to conclude? The final step in the propaganda machine is to do a meta-analysis of all the published studies. And that, of course, confirms that coffee will give you crusty toes. I learned some other interesting things. Of course, the first rule of statistics is that correlation does not equal causation. Just because people who do A end up with disease B doesn't mean that the cause is clearly there. I also learned that epidemiology doesn't really prove anything. What it does is provide an estimate of a probability that there's a relationship between A and B. This can be a very useful thing, but it's only meant as the first part of research to let other researchers know if it's worth pursuing studying in one direction or another. Oh, it looks like there's no connection here. No need to study that any further. Oh, it looks like there is a connection here. All right, let's pursue that and let's see if we can get in the lab and find some reasons for it.
statistics on their own don't actually prove anything. So with all this studying, looking at, oh, I have no idea how many, but a whole lot of studies on secondhand smoke, I learned that the dangers of secondhand smoke are the purest, purest bullshit. There's just nothing there. But all the studying taught me something even more important than the science, and that was the politics. When the people in power don't like what real science says, junk science marches in to fill the void and says, I'll give you the results you want. Just pay me. The World Health Organization did a study of secondhand smoke that was really very well done. They gathered data from seven different countries, 12 different areas. The data was verified. It was a really well done case control study. Large sample sizes for the, both the case and the controls. And then they sat on it. Because they didn't like the results. The British press got wind of it and started hounding them and finally eventually they released the study which showed that there was no relationship between secondhand smoke and lung cancer there was one number in it that was statistically significant and that was that adults who grew up in smoking households were less likely to get lung cancer it was a very small amount but it was the only statistically significant number in the whole study. And when they released the study, they also put out a press release. In the press release, in the body of it, they did admit that they really didn't have anything. And they, of course, ignored the protective effect that they'd found. But in the headline of that press release, they lied. They said something to the effect of, do not let them fool you. Secondhand smoke causes lung cancer. Two researchers, Enstrom and Kabat, set out to do a study, a retrospective study, that went back decades. The data for the study was supplied by the American Cancer Society. The funding came from the American Cancer Society and Berkeley. As the study approached its conclusion, the American Cancer Society announced that the data was no good. There was too much smoking in public in the early years of this data for it to be any good at all. It was terrible. It was perfectly good before, but now it was bad. And they pulled their funding from Enstrom and Combat, and so did Berkeley. These two gentlemen were not willing to give up all the years of research that they had put into this, so they went looking for other places that would fund the completion of the study. And the only one that they could find was an organization that was funded by Big Tobacco. And that permanently tainted the study. But this study, originally funded by Berkeley and the American Cancer Society, found no connection between secondhand smoke and lung cancer. Now, very little of this was in the news. Most people don't care about these kinds of things going on behind the scenes in academia. But the people who do this for a living, they were pretty aware of it. And they knew what was going on. It was a warning shot to them. And they learned very quickly 
that you got six-figure grants as long as you could supply numbers that showed SHS caused harm. And if your study showed otherwise, sorry, Sparky, that's the last study you're ever going to get funding for. Now, this wasn't a big conspiracy. You didn't have the American Cancer Society and the Lung Association and the anti-smoker organizations all getting together and saying, ooh, let's do this and let's do that. Certainly wouldn't do it in a smoke-filled room, would they? No, it was just the way things worked out. You had a lot of people handing out a lot of money for studies, but the only studies that were going to get funded were the ones that were going to give them the results that the purchasers wanted. When it comes to global warming, uh, excuse me, climate change, I see the same kind of behavior in that scientific community. Now, just for the record, let me state that I'm a lukewarmer. I've read an enormous amount on this, and I still don't pretend to be an expert on it. But it looks like the Earth is getting a little warmer, and that mankind is probably responsible for at least some of it. I'm not a denier. Denier is a word that was intentionally chosen. You can actually trace it back to an Ellen Goodman column. It was intentionally chosen to put people in the same bucket as Holocaust deniers. The word denier was never used for any other group except Holocaust deniers. And Ellen came along and said, well, they're really the same. And since then, if you disagree at all, you're a denier, which is the same as being a Nazi. The thing that made me realize that the AGW community is being run pretty much the same way as the SHS community was ClimateGate. I went in and read those emails in context, and then I read all the apologetics about them. And the fact is that these guys who are at the head of the climate change community were conspiring to hide data. Oh, you can hide behind this law or that law and you won't have to release the data. Change the data. Oh, make sure you change the date on that email. We don't want to give people any ammunition. One of them even threatened that if he were forced to release the data, he would delete it instead. Hey, that's pretty sciencey, isn't it? But it wasn't so much their behavior that colored my perception of the AGW movement. No, it was the fact that there were at least a half a dozen independent studies by various science organizations examining these emails and every single one of them said, yeah, eh, they, they didn't do anything wrong. It's okay. Move along, move along. Nothing to see here. Pay no attention to those men behind the curtain. Nah, it's fine. If even one or two of them had said, wow, these guys were way out of line. They've proven that they can't be trusted. So let's not look at their data anymore. Let's look at these other guys, though, because they've got something over here. I would have said, yes, that's the way science is supposed to work. But not a single 
organization said that. They all looked at it and they said, yeah, it's okay. There was an article a couple of years ago, and I was unable to find it. It was really tough to Google something specific sometimes on this subject, just because there's so much stuff out there. You're drinking from a fire hose. But there was an article by one of the leaders of the AGW movement that wanted to put weathermen who disagreed with it, and quite a few of them do, out of business. The American Meteorological Society has a certification of certified broadcast meteorologist, and it's hard to get, and you really need one if you're going to get a job as, say, a TV weatherman. And this person was demanding that unless they towed the line on climate change, this certification be revoked, essentially putting them out of a job. Wrong-thinking people should not be employed. I recently heard a great interview on the Tom Woods Show with Dr. Judith Curry. Uh, by the way, if you're not listening to the Tom Woods Show, you really should. It's a podcast, and this guy will smartenize you five times a week. It's good stuff. Check it out. Dr. Curry has published 140 scientific papers. She has served as a professor of climate science. She knows her stuff. She thinks that it's happening, but much more slowly than the doom and gloom sayers. She says there's growing evidence that climate sensitivity is at the lower end of the spectrum. Yet this has been totally ignored in the policy debate. Well, there's a pretty good reason why it's being ignored, even though a substantial percentage of climate scientists agree with her. It's because they've seen what's happened to her. She's become a pariah in the community. Just for suggesting that maybe this isn't happening at the rate that's being claimed. Maybe the environment isn't as sensitive to these changes as we've assumed that it is. And let's take a closer look at the data and make sure that it's accurate. For that, she's been called a heretic. A heretic. Now, is that a word that belongs in science? I could be wrong, but I always thought that that was a word that referred to religion. There are 16 state attorney generals who now want to prosecute companies who deny climate change. They claim that expressing opposition to it constitutes fraud. And just before I started recording this, I saw an article that the Competitive Enterprise Institute has received a subpoena from the Attorney General of the U.S. Virgin Islands. It demands everything that they've done on the subject of climate change from 1997 to 2007. Every document, every draft, every article, every email. And of course, they have to do this at their own expense. And the Attorney General wants it in less than a month. They are, of course, fighting it. And all of this is happening on top of U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch saying that the Justice Department is discussing the possibility of pursuing civil actions against climate change deniers. She's actually been talking with the FBI to see if any of this denial meets the criteria for a legal takedown. 
So we're moving from wrong-thinking people should not be employed to wrong-thinking people will be incarcerated. This, friends, is what happens when science becomes politics and religion. That's it for this episode of the Quick Hits Podcast. If you've learned a little something, if you've changed your mind, or even if you can just understand a different point of view without necessarily agreeing with it, congratulations, you've been smartenized. Going over the responses that I received from the last podcast, the Statheists podcast, I was a little disappointed that I didn't hear from any of my atheist friends or acquaintances telling me that I was completely wrong and here's why. Maybe it changed their minds. Or maybe they're just pondering it. Or maybe they're not listening in the first place or they unsubscribed immediately. Hard to tell. I did get some good comments on it, though. Lane Rapper says, I used to think I was smarter, then I became more observant, and while I am sure most atheists are smarter than average, some of the smartest people I have met are deeply religious. That's a good point, Lane, and one that I actually had intended to make in the last show, but didn't. I neglected it, so thanks for pointing that out. I know that... uh, I have more religious friends than atheist friends, and I don't hang out with stupid people. I think that they're wrong on that one subject, but it's not that big a deal. Kathy DeVries Donald wrote a rather long reply. I'm truncating this a little bit, but uh, not editing it in any way that changes the meaning of it. She says, I do have a strong faith system, religious-based, but as you know, Dave, it's been a problem with me being classified as any of the recognized religions. I'm more like a stew. Some of this, some of that, a little faith, a little bit of logic. I was once told that as soon as I agree to a belief in Jesus, per Son of God, that makes me a Christian. So when posting stuff, I have begun using spiritual Christian as my identity. It does not really, in most cases, make them dumber, but they allow emotions to overrule what logic they understand. That is why you cannot use logic in an argument with many of the progressives out there. They do not understand Bernie past the talking points. But he hits a good nerve. He gives them warm fuzzies. He promises to make the boo-boo better with a magic kiss, which should stop working as a fix by age five. And when cornered, They act the same age. First the tantrum, then they swing at the air and try to throw things, then put their hands on their hip and stomp their foot and leave, slamming the door behind them. Man, is that ever true. I have been in some ferocious arguments with conservatives and libertarians and never had any of them block me or ignore me or unfriend me as a result. But liberals? Progressives? (laughs) Happens all the time. You back them into a corner and suddenly everything they said just disappears from your feed. You're on block and ignore. They don't want to hear it because, well, I guess they're afraid. Maybe it violates their safe space. 
She continues, there was a reason after people voted for Obama the second time that the opposition talked of the Democratic supporters as drinking the Kool-Aid. They did, and they gave up logic for emotion. Barry said jump, and they did, and they dare not land again without him saying okay. When you try to make a logical argument about a failed policy decision he made, if you're white, you're a racist. If you're black, you're an Uncle Tom. And now they are already saying that if Hillary is the nominee and you don't vote for her, you hate women. You are anti-feminist. You are a product of the patriarchal society. And you are a douchebag. In my world, we possess a mind, a heart, and a gut, all of which produce feelings, one of which processes information and logic as well. When you have a failure to communicate between them, you are just unbalanced and might appear much less than smart or downright stupid in some cases. Well said, Kathy. And finally, a brief note from George Jeffries who says, I disagree with most of what you say in your podcasts, but I still enjoy listening to them. High quality work. Well, that's great, George. And seriously, I'm not asking everybody to agree with me. If you just understand a different point of view that you don't agree with, that's getting smartenized. And besides, if everybody agreed with me, this show would be pointless. There'd be no reason to do it. I think the world might be a better place, but it would also be a lot less interesting. Especially for me. Hey, if you haven't gone and bought Blood Witness yet, go get it. It's three bucks on Amazon for your Kindle or your Kindle reader. And if you play World of Tanks, get World of Tanks, the missing manual. I'm planning on raising the price of that. 99 cents is way too low, but I've got to update it first. And the only thing left to tell you is that the Quick Hits Podcast is nothing more than a journal of one man's opinion and therefore should not be taken too seriously.